it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, February the 16th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson, and welcome in to the Guy Benson Show. Very pleased to have you listening from coast to coast and all around the world between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday and around the clock on demand for free on our podcast at GuyBensonShow.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Our website, again, GuyBensonShow.com. We are coming to you for the next few days from New Orleans, Louisiana. We are stepped from the Superdome, and we are very happy to be here. In fact, we will have Congressman Steve Scalise, the Republican whip from the House of Representatives. He is a Louisianan, and he will join us tomorrow on the show. On today's show, here is the lineup, and it is packed. Joe Concha will join us, media analyst, coming up later this hour on the latest revelations about CNN, Chris Cuomo, and that huge fight. Jeff Zucker, of course, who's out, the former president of CNN, his longtime mistress and number two at CNN has now resigned as well. Not a surprising development there, but boy, that drama continues to deepen. Joe will bring us some, some thoughts on that. Byron York will also be with us in our next hour. Byron will help us break down some of the new polling that is bleak from the perspective of President Biden, the White House, and the Democratic Party. Some new numbers to go over today. U.S. Senator Mike Braun, Republican of Indiana, he will be here talking Ukraine and D.C. doings, also in our middle hour. That's coming up. And we will also check in on the ground in Kiev, Ukraine, a report from Steve Harrigan, one of our Fox News colleagues, who is there. What is the mood among everyday Ukrainians? We will ask him that and a few other questions. That's coming up. And finally... Andy McCarthy in our final hour. He will be here the happy hour just after 5 p.m. Eastern. We will get his, I would say, really important and expert analysis on the Durham probe. There are a few people, I would say, in the media landscape, the current constellation of media analysts who are better positioned to bring insightful information to us on that front. And Andy McCarthy is, as I've indicated, at the very top of that list for me. And we look forward to putting some questions about this saga to him in our final hour today. Fox News alert as we get going here. Let's bring you stats on COVID as we always do. The case count of COVID, 77.9 million. That is a vast overestimate, or I should say underestimate. The much bigger number is the real number of cases that have not necessarily been confirmed but uh, we're pretty confident exist. So that's a big undercount. What's more important is the trajectory at this point. And compared to two weeks ago, cases in the United States are down 67%. The death toll is up to 923,809 Americans 
who have died with or of COVID over the course of this pandemic. That trajectory, though, also improving now down double digits over the last two weeks, down 12 percent compared to two weeks ago. So that is an encouraging trend following those arcs, right, those curves that we talk about with cases being the front end and then the delayed lagging indicator of deaths on the back end. Those are coming down as well as the Omicron wave has well and truly crashed. As we get going today, I want to bring you some good news. We express a lot of frustration on this show, and I would say righteously so, about COVID and COVID restrictions in this country. Oh, by the way, I did not give you the Dow. The Dow is down nine points, 34,977. Wanted to get that in there as part of our daily ritual. But we express frustration and anger at adults in particular, who are making terrible decisions for children when it comes to COVID restrictions, masking in particular, and we have had more than our fair share of words and really hours on this program devoted to that issue. We also do a regular segment here called Woke Tales, where we talk about crazy left-wing woke mob excesses. We generally make fun of it, But it's a very serious problem in this country, which is why we focus on it as like a recurring theme here on the show. The news that I'm going to bring you here is positive on both of those fronts. Maybe an indication that there has been some progress. And it comes from a very unlikely source, a very unlikely place the people, the voters of San Francisco, California. Yesterday, there was a recall election for three school board members in San Francisco. Parents were furious, and I know a lot of people in the media and on the left would say, oh, these are just you know a handful of angry right-wing parents who are sort of kind of like domestic terrorists, and we should probably get the FBI on that. We remember that whole episode. They keep trying to downplay the righteousness of this cause and the widespread disgust and dissatisfaction among people. And they weirdly continue to downplay it and poo-poo it even after they get their butts handed to them in places like Virginia by Glenn Youngkin in a big, what, 12, 13-point swing away from the Democrats in New Jersey, the polling shifts, all this stuff is happening, and a lot of them, like the hardcore true believers, which includes a lot of journalists, they want to make it seem like, oh, it's just a, it's just a fraction of society. It's this weird, fanatical fringe, and this whole thing is overblown. Well, that theory, that proposition was put to the test in San Francisco. Again, I can't think of a city that's more associated in the public imagination with liberalism and progressivism in America than San Francisco. You could say there's places that are more radical like Portland and Seattle, but there's a reason that the term San Francisco liberal exists and is common in our discourse. That is sort of ground zero of modern leftism in America, San Francisco. We had been telling you, so you've got, of course, the COVID stuff, and schools were closed in San Francisco for a year and a half. They closed early in the pandemic, as they did virtually everywhere in the United States. And then they stayed closed 
for that entire school year. So March, April, May, June, the next year rolled around and schools were closed again. August, September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, May, June. Think about how much time that is. How much in-person instruction didn't occur. How much learning loss happened. The teachers unions in California were being awful. The national teachers unions were doing everything they could to keep schools closed, including pressuring the CDC and the Biden administration to change the science, the official quote-unquote science, which they did successfully. That is a scandal and a disgrace. I know that they say, oh, we, we wanted schools open the whole time. It just needed to be safe. They are gaslighting. But a major player in making the choice to keep all those schools closed and harming all of those kids, and we understand how much harm. I don't maybe not fully understand. That's going to take years. But we already know how much harm shuttered schools inflicted on people, on kids, on children, which is why it was so much better, smarter, and more pro-science for schools to remain open in much of Europe, in Florida. In many cases, no masks. The kids were fine. There was no explosion of transmission in schools or kids dying. It never happened. The fear mongerers were wrong. And a lot of the people today who are still clinging to the masks are the ones who were advocating for the schools and the classrooms to remain closed for as long as they did. San Francisco was about as bad as anywhere in the country on closed classrooms. So you had a lot of parents very upset about that. But then you layered on top of it in San Francisco a bunch of woke nonsense. And we covered all of it here. You may recall, if you're a regular listener, some of our segments about these controversies. For instance, they decided while schools were closed, the kids were in failed and failing remote learning for months on end. The school board was nevertheless busy, 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 little busy body, busy bees, these adults keeping kids locked out of classrooms, but deciding that what they had to do was scrape names off of school buildings because they weren't woke enough. They were somehow problematic. These names included George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, even Dianne Feinstein. These were, I guess, you know, crimes against inclusion and diversity and equity. And so we had to rename a bunch of schools, dozens of schools. That was a decision that they made, and they were voting for it. And ultimately, someone decided, you know what, this is a bad look for us, and there's so much blowback, let's just table it. But they were actively pursuing eliminating school-named or schools named after Abraham Lincoln and George Washington to rename those schools in the name of you know whatever their sort of left-wing religion is. And those standards would also change, and the new names would be problematic years from now, so you'd have to have new changes, and on and on it would go. This is how they operate. And this is what these adults, quote-unquote, in the school board at San Francisco, out, out on the West Coast, this is how they were preoccupying themselves. This is how they were using their time. Not getting kids back into classrooms where they desperately needed to be, but worrying about naming school buildings and changing those names because, you know, Abraham Lincoln was offensive or whatever. Ultimately, they jettisoned the plan last spring, but that was a big story. Another big story was one of the most successful magnet schools in the country, 
constantly ranked, you know, near the top nationwide, Lowell High School. It's been a very successful model. They didn't like that success because the success wasn't equitable enough. So they had to destroy the success. And the way they decided to destroy the success to make it just fairer, you have to understand. right? Success and excellence, bad, because it's not fair, and there wasn't enough equity. So they got rid of the longstanding practices for merit-based applications and admissions into that school. Because, you know, there wasn't enough diversity. They're basically saying, screw you, as usual, to the Asian-American community. There's a Supreme Court case about that at the college level right now. And they were just going to go to a random lottery, just destroying really the essence of that school. So there were a lot of cross-currents going on at play out in San Francisco in the schools, which were closed, and then all this other like really like left-wing craziness on parade personified by the school board. And they were able to get a recall petition together to throw these people out of office, three of them. And yesterday, with all that background, I'm just reminding you, yesterday was the vote. And all three of them were not just recalled, so they're going to be out, thrown out of the job by the voters, I'll remind you, of San Francisco. They were all blowouts. Every single one, all three of these people who've been voted out and recalled, the margins were at least 70% in favor of the recall. That is dramatic. That is yet another data point along the way. That this is not just limited to some like weird astroturf right-wing parents getting, you know, secret Koch brothers money or something. This is real. This is organic. And people are royally pissed, including in San Francisco. You can push those people very far. You can have homeless people defecating on their front steps. You can do a lot of stuff. Drug syringes everywhere, looting all the time, lawlessness, a DA who does nothing. He's up for recall too, by the way. But if you just keep abusing people over and over again and insulting their intelligence and doing it all in the name of left-wingery and equity, at some point there is a breaking point. And boy, was that breaking point discovered yesterday with these landslide recall elections. It is just fantastic, fantastic news. Here's one of the parents and recall organizers in Cut 15 explaining the grievance, and it's a good one. What's driving this recall is that the school board has not been prioritizing our children's education, instead focusing on renaming schools and closing merit-based admissions Yep, that is a pretty succinct explanation. And here we have the results. And I think they are very heartening results and probably pretty scary results for the Democratic Party writ large. Because, among other things, Noah Rothman made this point on Twitter today. Schools have been open in San Francisco for this academic year. So they reopened in August. The renaming of schools, all the Abraham Lincoln nonsense, all that crap, that was at least put on hold almost a year ago. So the thought would be, oh, maybe people will get over it. They'll forget. Kids are in school this year, and so let bygones be bygones. They're not going to focus on the past. No, there's a lot of simmering anger and resentment that's residual. People aren't going to just let it go. 
just because they were thinking about doing these things, and some of the fights are still active, last year or a year ago, or, you know, they, oh, they've been back in school for months, so let's all just, you know, cool our jets and move on. Uh, that's not the mood of the electorate right now. So if Democrats feel like they can all of a sudden collectively turn on a dime, for example, on mask mandates and other restrictions, school mask mandates, as they've all done in the last two weeks in this panic, based not on science, but based on polling and politics, and they feel like, oh, this will save us in November, I think people have been paying attention. Voters have been paying attention. And by the way, one last note. A new poll today from Politico. They asked people, do you want mask mandates in your community gone or do you want to keep them? A plurality, 49% say, all right, we're done. We want mask mandates removed. 43% want them to stay in place. But that's heavily the Democrats, which is why their party is going to have this struggle. It's it's not over for them because they've got a lot of people invested in this sort of COVID cult religion that they have going on over there. That's their political problem to deal with. Manifested in some ways, I think, last night in, again, of all places, San Francisco. The Guy Benson Show is just getting started from New Orleans today. Stay with us. Don't go anywhere. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. I'm Guy Benson. There's a report from NBC News that the White House and the CDC might be changing their official position on masking because, as we've been saying, the science isn't actually changing. The politics are. They're like, oh, we better update that science. Have you seen the polls? And the polls are dreadful. We'll get to those a little bit later on in the show. But here's a a line from the NBC report, quote, senior administration officials have asked Walensky, the CDC director, to provide an update on masks before President Joe Biden's State of the Union address on March 1st. Now, doesn't that sound super science-y? Oh, we need, some, uh, we need some, uh, some new science, please. Can we cook up some new science? And your deadline is the State of the Union address, a big political speech. Is that how science works? I don't think so. It feels like politics, doesn't it? Meanwhile, I saw a video on Twitter 
They're still forcing little kids to eat lunch outside in the freezing cold, wearing masks in Montgomery County, Maryland, run by a bunch of left-wing neurotics. Voters are paying attention to this stuff. They know who to blame, and it's the party in power. We'll be right back. Joe Concha up next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Quick Fox News alert with some breaking news here. The governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, has now signed that bill that requires mask optional choices for parents in Virginia and also requires in-person learning for school days to count. That is now law. And he made a signing statement, a major day, and a major achievement in the Commonwealth of Virginia here in the first month, really month plus a day, I believe, of the Youngkin administration. He's off to a very fine start, in my estimation. That is a big, big victory for children specifically. And, of course, for parents and parents' rights. And third, least important of the three, politically for Youngkin. This is a bipartisan win, but it was driven almost exclusively by the Republicans in Virginia. The newly empowered Republicans, I would add, in Virginia. Joining me now is Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, columnist at The Hill, media critic. Joe, welcome back to the show. That's a great win, Guy, and thanks for having me back. Yeah, uh, Glenn Youngkin showed in Virginia that you don't need Donald Trump to win, right? I mean, he didn't run against Trump, so to speak, and and bring up uh, all the negative things about Trump that you could bring up uh, and sort of distancing himself. He he kept Trump at bay enough. He he ran on issues, right? He made sure that, okay, we're going to run on education and we are going to run, obviously, on Joe Biden's record and what that means for Virginia. And he won a state that Joe Biden won by double digits in 2020. And it just shows you stick to issues, stay away from all the other noise. And Republicans could have a very, very, very good midterm in 2022 in November. Well, and and he's delivering on those promises already. And the only candidate and the only campaign that made this election in Virginia a few months ago about Donald Trump, that was Terry McAuliffe and the Democrats. They desperately tried to make it a Trump-centric campaign. They failed, and uh, we're witnessing the results right now, and uh, I'm, I'm pretty pleased. Joe, we want to talk here about the latest news coming out of CNN where another top executive has now resigned from the network, following in the footsteps of the former president of that network. Jeff Zucker out, and now his number two, and apparently his his longtime lover, also out. Tell us about that development, and then maybe how it plays into this New York Times report, this scoop about some of the drama behind the scenes involving Chris Cuomo and CNN leadership. Yeah, I mean, I think we could stop, you know, this whole charade guy of Jeff Zucker, who was 
network president there for a decade, right, and a hands-on network executive, as in calling into the control room and telling anchors literally what questions to ask if they have Kellyanne Conway on, for example, uh, or basically just not exactly the type of network president that we've seen in the past, but one that really, really wanted to control uh, he was also, I mean, He was also hands-on. He was hands-on in another way as well with one of his fellow executives, which I think is you know part of this whole story. Well done. Uh, his, you know, his mistress, who who has now stepped aside. Precisely. And so when we hear, well, it was a consensual relationship and that broke the rules and he had to go. There's not a person on the planet that believes this. OK, so now, uh, for whatever reason, Zucker had to resign, if you want to call it that. I'll call it an ouster by Warner Media, which, which owns CNN. And obviously the new bosses coming in probably didn't like what they were seeing very much from a we're sports guys. Right. And, and when you lose 90 percent of your audience, when 10 people are watching CNN in an airport terminal in 2021 in January and then nine leave the terminal yeah, under <laughs> duress. 2022 <laughs> under right exactly uh, you lose 90 percent of your audience why keep that manager that general manager around in sports terms so yeah business was going poorly and then obviously we have this whole connection between allison gullist who's she she is the girlfriend of jeff sucker the one that he was having the relationship with which again they say this just began during covid well no because katie kirk wrote a book saying that this has been going on for many years and rolling stone even reports that they've been dating now for 25 years despite being married and having kids and so on so so where we're at now is that Gullist was the former communications director for Andrew Cuomo, right? So then Zucker and Gullist, if you read several reports, were advising Andrew COVID at the height of COVID. This is before vaccines, before therapeutics, when thousands of people are dying every day in New York, advising Andrew Cuomo, here's how you look better in this situation, and here's how you make Donald Trump look worse. I've talked about journalism. Forget bias. Now we're going from journalism to activism, and this was it in broad daylight as far as Zucker and Gullist, and now Gullist is finally out, and on the way out, she doesn't seem very happy with the way she's being treated, but you have to be kidding me that she's the indignant one here after everything she's accused of, which, where there's smoke, there's a lot of fire and boy there's a lot of fire here yeah she's playing the victim on her way out the door you mentioned this this allegation that top executives at cnn zucker and gullist were not only allowing the cuomo show to go on between andrew and chris you know chris being their host andrew being the governor of new york they actually orchestrated it it's not like they sort of turned a blind eye and tolerated it it was their idea they were the ones making the bookings. They were the ones who wanted this to happen. And part of the reason is it was good for ratings. That's why they were allegedly just advising. They were, it's like they were advisors to the Democratic governor of New York how to make better TV, what to say at his COVID press briefings, how to maybe you know ratchet up the, uh, the feud with Donald Trump and draw sharper distinctions between his leadership and, and Donald Trump's leadership at the time uh, because that was – that was happening, those press conferences in a day part, where they felt like, oh, this is really good for our ratings. It is incredibly unethical. I've seen some people saying, oh, well, do you, do you all remember that at Fox News, Sean Hannity would call Trump regularly and vice versa, and there were text messages on January 6th, people urging you know, Trump to, to call off the dogs and intervene or whatever. To me, there is a huge difference between a branded opinion host who makes no bones about his support for Donald Trump and was very open about his political biases, having a relationship with a president or, you know, a politician in this case, versus the leadership of a network, the executives at a network coaching a politician how to make better TV and how to 
present his arguments, you know, politically in a way that would be more advantageous to him and to them. I don't think that those are in the same universe, Joe. And I, I just set that up because I've been sitting here wondering why would they ax Chris Cuomo? Why would they give him the boot? Supposedly because he wasn't being honest and forthcoming about the extent to which he was helping his brother on his PR team. Why would they do that? I mean, obviously it's very unethical. He wasn't forthcoming about it. He didn't disclose the extent of it. He was not honest. He was, you know, betraying other media sources unbeknownst to them on behalf of his brother. I mean, it was definitely a fireable offense, but they themselves, the people who then did that firing, were guilty of the same thing. They were also on Andrew Cuomo's PR team. So I'm like, how do they fire the brother for doing the thing that in a slightly different context, but arguably worse, they were also doing? That brings us maybe, if we're looking for an answer to this New York Times story today, that there was an allegation against Chris Cuomo back in his ABC News days about a decade ago from a woman, a young woman at ABC News, that he reportedly, allegedly invited into his office for a lunch to talk about her future. She says when she showed up to this lunch in Chris Cuomo's office, the door closed, there was no food, there was no lunch. He aggressively asked for sex. Wow. She said no. He then, according to her, assaulted her. She ran out of the room. And years later, when Me Too became a huge issue, Cuomo, out of the blue, had had not spoken to this woman for years. Chris Cuomo contacted her, sort of asking to do her a favor by putting a favorable segment on the air about her new company on CNN. And that was interpreted by this woman. Again, this is what she says. And Chris Cuomo, through his representative, denies all of this. But apparently CNN became aware of all of this. She says that she interpreted his newfound interest in her after years of radio silence was sort of Cuomo looking around saying, okay, it's a Me Too moment. Uh, I've got some skeletons here on this front. Let me try to make good with at least one of these women and, like, you know, give her something using my CNN auspices to maybe make sure that she doesn't blow the whistle on me. That's the allegation. That came out in the New York Times today. If, If CNN executives had that and they were sitting on it, plus all the other stuff, then that might help explain why ultimately they said this could burn us badly, as it has, but we've got to get rid of this guy. It was a preemptive uh, offer so she wouldn't talk. Like, let me just be nice here, just make sure that she doesn't come forward, right? That 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 seems to make sense here. And again, Chris Cuomo deserves due process. We shouldn't jump the gun on that. But if yeah, true— he denies it. Uh, Right, right. He denies it, exactly. I, I can tell you personally, having dealt with Chris Cuomo, he is a horrible— person he, he is not a good person at all and, and but i could i will defend him here though in this sense if jeff zucker and allison gullist were doing to your point exactly the same thing that he was doing in terms of advising his brother and then they turn around this is really like uh the godfather right and they turn around and they stab fredo and say okay you gotta go because what you did was unethical he must have been like what are you kidding me you were leading the charge on this i was following your example and now i got emails i got well, texts. that's, that's I why know he's where asking the bodies for all this are buried, money. guy right What's he's that? asking for he's asking for millions and millions of dollars 60 million yeah, sixty Megan million, Kelly which money, is called it. crazy. Like way more money than was even contractually owed him if he had, you know, played out his entire time under that contract. He wants of tens of millions of dollars from CNN, and it seems that the implication is, uh, I've got 
even more dirt on you people. And if you want to make that go away forever, give me a lot of money. And this might be a pushback. Whoever planted this story over at the New York Times from CNN saying, okay, if you're going to come after us, we know this about you. You want to get me too? Let's talk about the woman at ABC in 2011. It feels like this is a massive power struggle and sort of a rolling example of like sort of back and forth, tit for tat retribution uh, between Chris Cuomo and CNN and now the, the executives that are gone. I mean, it's ugly, Joe. It's ugly. And you see all these hosts and anchors who defended Zucker so passionately after, you know, he got ousted. And, and uh, somebody made a very good point to me that's very high up in this business. We'll put it that way. They said they weren't so much defending Zucker. They were scared to death that this could either, A, expose them as dispens- dispensable, which all of them are because you look at the ratings, right? But more importantly, what did they know about everything that was going on, particularly uh, those very close to Zucker, who, uh, particularly one uh, media correspondent who was in his office several times a day? So uh, I think once Discovery comes in and, and they're going to be the, the new uh, stakeholders in CNN, I think they clean house uh, guy. And I mean not just one or two here and there, but I think you're going to see a whole new CNN maybe. one year from now than the one we're maybe. Or, or maybe. Maybe they, or maybe they look around and say, oh, pay up. Let's, let's pay the ransom here, basically, and yeah. get this all under non-disclosure agreements and move on. We shall see. Very quickly, Joe, I know you've got to run. Did you, this is just an interesting coda, an interesting note about Chris Cuomo. Did you happen to see where he's been hanging out lately? Uh, well, I, I saw one report that he was uh, – it was at some, some swanky place. I forget where it was. Fill in the blank for me on this one. Florida, the state that he <laughs> railed right. against on his show constantly with Ron Death Santis being the worst of the worst and killing everyone. Isn't it interesting with his millions of dollars out of a job, Chris Cuomo decamps to Florida. It's almost like he doesn't really believe half the stuff he says. Wow. I, I doubt uh, he was in the middle seat, though, between uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and Eric Swalwell and all these <laughs> <Yes>. other people <laughs> who talk about how hard Florida is only to uh-huh. run to it. And I'm going next week, guy. I'll be in Tampa Clearwater for one week with my kids at Bush Gardens. Good time. Yeah, well, you, you haven't been dumping on Florida. You've been praising Florida, so no hypocrisy there. I just love it. These people rail against Florida and Ron DeSantis, and then when they've got an opportunity for a vacation, or a very long one in Chris's case, off to Florida they go. I think that's fun. <laughs> you could do like a whole tourism you know, like advertising campaign for Florida based on the people who attack the state who vacation there anyway. That could be sort of a, a cheeky thing. Uh, I'll, I'll start workshopping that perhaps. Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, columnist at the Hill. Appreciate it, Joe. Another interesting day over at the competition. I love covering media. There's always something to talk about. Thanks, Guy. Joe Concha on The Guy Benson Show, which returns after this break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I should also mention that really at this point in the pandemic that we do not have strong evidence that mask mandates of children in schools have actually been effective at curbing the spread of COVID-19 within the schools. So um, we should really, you know, look at the harms and the benefits of what we're doing to children and ask if it's worth continuing masking in schools. And I and my co-authors feel like uh, that the um, benefits of masking, which we really haven't been able to identify in schools, do not outweigh the harms, particularly to young children and uh, English language learners, etc. 
That was Dr. Tracy Hogue on CBS News telling the truth. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. It's a doctor talking about research that she has done on school masking and concluding that she couldn't find any discernible, supportable scientific benefit to masking kids. And if there's no benefit to masking kids, of course, that is outweighed by the harms that are being established when it comes to masking children. There's downside to kids' well-being. There is not upside to kids' well-being. And yet, that remains the policy, the official policy endorsed by the Biden administration and the CDC. The White House is still endorsing and embracing forced masking of young children in schools. Now, luckily, a lot of people have been ignoring that advice for a long time. Because it is not scientific advice. It is not sound advice. And we gave you this alert just earlier in the hour, but Governor Glenn Youngkin in Virginia has officially signed into law a bill that requires parents to have a choice when it comes to whether or not their kids wear masks in schools. They had the emergency provision attached, which means that it would become immediately enforceable, right? It would be implemented now, not down the line. That passed on a bipartisan basis, returned to the governor. And I I say it's bipartisan because there were a handful of Democrats who said yes in the Senate. They were united. The rest of the party and the Democrats in Virginia were against it. The House of Delegates Democrats were all against it. This is a Republican push helped along by some Democrats, which was necessary in the state Senate. But Youngkin campaigned on this. He promised this. He's now delivered it. And we told you that little emergency provision that he has, thanks to a previous Democratic, capital D, Democratic power grab when they were in charge, it is now the law of the Commonwealth. It doesn't matter what Fairfax County or Alexandria County or, you know, the the supermarket Karen read the room, what they think about it. It is up to parents now. Now, I imagine there might still be some resistors on this. But the law is the law, not just an executive order from the governor, the actual new statute on the books in Virginia as of just minutes ago. Big, big win. By the way, I saw this. I had to laugh. The secretary of education under President Biden, he tweeted this yesterday. Today's hashtag love teaching theme is Tremendous Tuesday, where we are challenged to tell a six word story that describes why you hashtag love teaching. Mine is, so this is what the education secretary loves most about children, quote, the smile on a student's face. Really, Mr. Secretary? Really? Maybe you need to read the room. You're part of an administration that is still trying to force these muzzles onto kids' faces based on no science. Maybe you should tell your boss how much you love smiles on students' faces. How about that? Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Don't go anywhere. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. A brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, live in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, that's our website. Many ways to listen live, including 
on our great affiliates all across the country. GuyBensonShow.com, your one-stop shop for everything, including the free podcast, which is available on demand after the show every single day. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert as we get to our middle hour of three here, and we're kicking it off. The Dow ends down today, 54 points, closing at 34,934. Let's bring in Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. Byron, great to have you back here. Hi, Guy. Good to be here. Thanks. Hardly know where to start on some of this polling for President Biden, but if there's a theme that runs through all of it, a common thread, it would be bad. This is really bad news for the White House and President Biden just across the board. There was a civics poll that came out a day or two ago that has the president at 34 percent approval. I saw a new Quinnipiac poll has him at 35 percent approval. I mean, mid-30s Byron is pretty catastrophic. I mean, I understand it's not September or October. We're a ways off from the midterms, but there seem to be a kind of new floors being discovered when it comes to support yeah. for President Biden. And I just want to get, first of all, your overall thoughts on this trend. Well, it's it's no surprise. <laughs> Excuse me. It's no surprise uh, because he's been going down and he's probably not going to go up very quickly. As a matter of fact, last week, I believe he fell below 50 percent, excuse me, he fell below 40 percent for the first time in the real clear politics average of polls. Uh, and remember, the reason, we're, one of the big reasons we're talking about this is because um, a president's job approval rating is the best, the best predictor of how his party will perform in midterm elections. If you look at Gallup, uh, Gallup did a, a study a while back that uh, going back all the way to the 1940s, if you look at Gallup, for presidents whose job approval rating is above 50 percent, the, um, the average loss of seats is 14 seats. Presidents whose job approval rating is below 50 percent, average loss of seats is 37 seats. And I'll give you one last thing. Another um, uh, analyst named Nathan Gonzalez went through uh, midterms going all the way back to Harry Truman and said, no president, not one, has substantially increased, raised his job approval rating between February of his midterm year and the actual election. Interesting. And, I mean, we see the news yesterday, for instance, on inflation Worse than expected, the border crisis, as you and I have talked about, Byron, multiple times, continues to spiral out of control and and in some ways is getting worse. Uh, Some of the things that Biden could maybe hope for for a turnaround aren't happening. And even if he did have some of these things happening in his favor, that still might be a tall order based on the history that you just rehearsed for us. Uh, That might explain why a 30th House Democrat announced yesterday that she, in this case, is going to be retiring, not seeking reelection in 2022. I mean, it is getting to be extremely worrisome days for the Democratic Party. Just citing those two polls, uh, Civics, uh, Quinnipiac. There was a poll out of California that I saw today that has President Biden underwater on approval in California. Kamala Harris, the vice president, even worse In the state of California, that's a California-based pollster. 
There was also uh, this data, Byron, that went state by state. They polled like 170,000 people across the country, and they broke it down by state. This was the overall poll that had Biden at 34 percent approval nationwide in some of the most important Senate states. Let me give you Joe Biden's approval ratings. Arizona, 32 percent. Georgia, 31 percent. Nevada, 35 percent. New Hampshire, 41 percent. North Carolina, 33 percent. Pennsylvania, 36 percent. Wisconsin, 36 percent. Look, I'm not necessarily willing to be convinced that he's that bad in terms of his standing in all of those states. But if he's even like in the the neighborhood of that bad in these key Senate states, I mean, the Republicans would really have to screw it up for themselves, you would think, not to win back the Senate in addition to what's widely expected to be a House majority as well. He's around 40 percent nationwide. It only makes sense that he's going to be well into the 30s in some states. And what you mentioned about House Democratic retirements is is very important because they're voting with their feet. And right now we have 30 Democrats, House Democrats, who said they're not going to run for re-election versus 13 Republicans who are not going to run for re-election. Now go back to 2018. So that's when Democrats got very excited, picked up 40 seats, won the House in Donald Trump's uh, midterm elections. At that point, it was Republicans who were departing in droves, and there were 34 Republicans who had retired in that year versus 18 Republicans. So now we're at 30 Democrats right now, and it's very likely that we'll probably get to that 34 number before this is all over. Meanwhile, there's a story in Politico. I believe it was published yesterday or it might have been today. Let me just read you one quote on the piece where the headline, GOP culture war attacks alarmingly potent DCCC warns. So this is the uh, the House wing of the Democratic Party's sort of uh, you know election machine. Their job is to win House races. They've done internal polling, and they have found that Republican attacks against the Democrats on culture war issues are alarmingly potent. And here's uh, one of the key quotes from the story. The GOP hits, i.e. attacks, are most effective with center-left voters, independents, and Hispanic voters, demographic groups that Democrats have struggled to attract in recent years. And there's also DCCC saying, here's how we think we can get out of this hole that we've dug for ourselves. You know, we we can push back these ways. But if the DCCC... Byron, is sounding the alarm that these culture war attacks are landing and landing with key groups like independents and Hispanics. That's another piece of, I would say, dire news for the Democratic Party, which has no one to blame but themselves. These are not Republican invented issues. If they were, they wouldn't work. Right. People would look around and say, OK, these Republicans are yelling about, you know, racialized school curricula and out of control, cancel culture and wokeness and defund the police and crime. If their everyday life didn't reinforce those attack points, they would be far less potent. I know that sort of the media likes to wring their hands and saying, oh, these Republicans are lying and inventing this stuff and they might lie their way to a majority. I think that is yet again missing the boat of why. These attacks are resonating. Yeah. Alarmingly potent is, is really, it kind of just catches your eye. And clearly, they're very worried about it. And they're, they're worried 
not because it's even uniting Republicans, although that's a bad thing when you fire up your uh, opposition. They're worried because they're losing groups that they used to have solid majorities with. The biggest is um, with Hispanic voters. We have seen a number of strategists, Rui Teixeira being probably the most prominent Democratic strategist, warning for the last year, Democrats are losing Hispanics in big numbers. And you have to remember the whole idea of the emerging Democratic majority, which was the title of Teixeira's book. And a lot of Democrats believe that certainly after the Obama coalition kind of coalesced, that Democrats would just win the White House from now on. And they're losing Hispanic votes. They're getting, they're getting warning yeah, after that warning. that totally upends the theory. Right. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. I hate to cut you off, Fire, but we're up on a hard break. And add on to that, the votes in San Francisco last night. I mean, something is underfoot in America. It's The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thank you for listening. An update on a story that we brought you yesterday, which was quite a story out of Kentucky. If you missed it, we went back to 2019 and read from a column written by a left-wing activist, an anti-gun advocate, also one of these racial justice people, and an opinion writer for the Courier-Journal the biggest newspaper in Kentucky. His name, Quintez Brown. And he had written this column in 2019 saying that the Republicans in the state didn't care about people's lives because they were pushing to expand gun rights to law-abiding citizens. And he had this whole jumble, like a woke bingo card, of all these phrases he was talking about, the patriarchy, and, and you know, you name it, it was in there. But his upshot was... The basic summary was Republicans are evil and bad and they don't care about your life because they're pro-gun rights. Then we contrasted and juxtaposed that posture from his column with the development this week that he, Quintez Brown, has been charged with attempted murder as he tried to assassinate a Democratic mayoral candidate in Louisville. He shot at the guy, missed him, thank goodness, grazed this candidate's clothing, and he's now under arrest, has been charged with multiple felonies. And, of course, this super anti-gun advocate found himself a gun and tried to use it to murder someone. And my point was, perhaps this is a case study in why law-abiding citizens should have gun rights to protect themselves against people like Quintez Brown, who would like to disarm them while being an alleged gun criminal himself at this point. So a few things have arisen after this story made some national news just because of you know how crazy it is and the obvious hypocrisies involved, one of which, and I mentioned it briefly yesterday, was that some on the left decided they were going to find a way to blame this on conservatives anyway. So one of Joe Biden's ad makers and a Democratic operative was out there tweeting about how this was, uh, you know, right-wing, dangerous rhetoric that was responsible. That was just an assumption that was made about who must have been the culprit. Oh, a Democratic candidate was shot at? It must be a right-winger. Let me jump to my foregone conclusions based on my own ideological biases. 
By the way, that's exactly what a bunch of leftists did after Gabby Giffords was shot in 2011. They turned that into a political story, even though there was no political angle to the reality. And that's why there's ongoing lawsuits and appeals from Sarah Palin, for instance, about the New York Times egregiously irresponsible framing of that story. So we're seeing that again here, just on a lower level, less of a scale. Nevertheless, this one sort of stopped me in my tracks. The Las Vegas Sun, so major newspaper in a major American city, they published an editorial. It went up very early this morning talking about this shooting. And I guess they decided that they wanted to write the editorial because it was an opportunity for them to excoriate conservatives, even though the suspect in this case who's been charged is a left-wing activist. This guy was on MSNBC on Joy Reid's show. He's a BLM guy. He's a racial justice guy. He's a black nationalist. He's fanatically anti-gun, except I guess when he needs one to shoot someone that he doesn't like. Nevertheless, the Las Vegas Sun, I guess, knew none of this, bothered to discover none of this, and wrote the following sentences in their editorial. The alleged shooter, a 21-year-old political activist, was arrested near the scene and later charged with attempted murder along with four counts of wanton endangerment. While there's been no indication yet that the activist has ties to any right-wing organizations, the shooting comes amid a rise in threats against politicians fueled by increasingly violent rhetoric coming from extremist Republicans. So they knew enough about the story to write a whole editorial about it, to talk about the alleged shooter, to identify him as a political activist, but they didn't know that he was a political activist on their side? I find that hard to believe. I think they wanted to shoehorn a narrative into a set of circumstances and didn't care what the actual details were. And maybe they just didn't bother to find out. Either way, it is appallingly bad journalism, even opinion journalism. I mean, we told you the details of this case and who was apparently responsible and what his background is, what his ideology looks like. We told you that hours, like 10 hours before this editorial was published by a newspaper halfway across the country. Sometimes you just have a narrative and you are going to cling to it regardless of what the facts of any circumstance might actually be. So that is a very telling indictment, certainly of that editorial board, but generally just the generalized bigotries that exist among millions of people where they have their, to borrow a phrase, alternative facts. They are going to point the finger at the bad people, quote-unquote, no matter who is actually responsible. Like there were people actually trying to blame, I remember, Donald Trump's rhetoric for the baseball field shooting where Steve Scalise was almost assassinated by a left-winger who explicitly made sure he was shooting at Republicans because he hated them. There were people trying to jujitsu that thing into being Trump's fault. This is your brain on tribalist partisanship, and it's a very ugly sight. One more quick note on this Quintez Brown situation. There's a Twitter account that I follow called Defiant L's, and it's generally just making fun of typically lefties and progressives, sometimes people on the right, by just taking screenshots of previous tweets and putting them next to each other, 
showing, in most cases, a glaring contradiction. Like, look at these hypocrites who are defiant as they take L's, right, as they demonstrate that they have lost. It was a clever account. I enjoyed following them. They have been, for no apparent reason that we know of at least, suspended. That account has been suspended. I believe their last tweet before they were suspended was putting side-by-side Quintez Brown, his column on gun control, and then his attempted murder gun charges. I'm not sure why posting screenshots of previous tweets would be a violation of the terms of service, for example, at Twitter. I don't know what got him suspended. It does seem very odd. And there was no clear explanation for what actually happened. He just went into Twitter jail out of nowhere, assuming it's a he. We don't know who's responsible for the account. But a lot of conservatives were concerned about the timing of this and the justification for it. And a few of us kicked up quite a stink on Twitter. And I guess the good news is, earlier this afternoon, the account has been reinstated. Give them a follow, at Defiant L's. It's pretty good stuff. And the Quintez Brown tweets are just pure gold. It's just like fish in a barrel for this account and what they do. Oh, and one more thing, a report from local news in Louisville. Apparently, the official BLM organization... We have talked about how radical they are as an organization, as opposed to the proposition that Black Lives Matter. They are rushing out to post bail, reportedly, for Quintez Brown. What kind of priority is that, you have to wonder? Extremely revealing and, frankly, confirming. With that, we need to step aside. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, U.S. Senator Mike Braun of Indiana. Stay tuned. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you along. We are live in New Orleans today and also tomorrow and Friday. Louisiana. Some Cajun food last night. I actually had some gumbo. I was thinking about a salad for my appetizer. I'm like, you know what? No. I'm in New Orleans. I'm not having a salad. I'm having gumbo. And it was delicious. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free. We've got Steve Harrigan, our Fox News colleague, on the ground in Kiev, Ukraine. We will talk to him next for an update on what he is seeing. But for now, let's get to our next guest, U.S. Senator Mike Braun, a Republican of Indiana. And, Senator, good to have you back here on the show. Thanks for doing this. Hey, good to be back on. Give us your thoughts, if you would, on what the U.S. ought to be doing vis-a-vis Ukraine. I know that we have been standing with them rhetorically. I know we have been sending them a lot of uh, assistance militarily to defend themselves against what could be this Russian invasion. Uh, Are we doing enough? What's your overall thought on this? Well, real quickly, when you're kind of uh, back up against the wall, you projected weakness throughout uh, the little over a year you've been president of the U.S. and you're scrambling, uh, your options aren't as good as if you had done otherwise. Uh, I cite that none of this happened kind of thing under the Trump administration. Uh, We did actually take out a state terrorist and General Soleimani with Iran and 
all of that stuff is measured by the mischief makers across the world. Uh, of course, the end game, I think, is where does a place like China and Xi kind of size all this up? But uh, I think there's been a general uh, indication that if they cross into Ukraine, that they'll pay the price uh, economically. And, Guy, for any of your listeners, you talk about a country that punches way above their uh, weight. Their economy, Russia, is only $1.7 trillion. Germany's is $3.9 trillion. The EU, with Great Britain in it, uh, was $22 trillion. It's about 20 So there is so much disproportionate strength. And when you project it in a way that is so weak, you inevitably get into these pickles. So uh, I think since the economic consequences would be so great for an economy so small, he knows that's what did the Soviet Union in back many years ago when they were a much larger economy. Uh, that's kind of my take on it. Got it. So they're less than a $2 trillion economy. Their GDP, yes. ours is what, $21 trillion? So 21, 10 times the size 21. of theirs. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. The question is, you know, does Putin necessarily care and does he believe that the painful repercussions would be painful enough to really cause problems? I think those are really the questions that need to be asked. Do you have confidence that if this invasion happens, you know, whatever scale it might look like, if it happens, do you have confidence that the Congress will stop the squabbling and actually you know, put forward on a bipartisan basis extremely painful and crippling sanctions? You know, I think that will happen. Um, I think it's disappointing that Germany, the biggest economy in the EU, is the direct cause of this kind of lukewarm response to an international bully and someone that put – and the issue you get into is when you do amass uh, two-thirds of your ground forces, uh, there could be a – you know, some type of um, fuse lit that sends it into a place that you wouldn't anticipate either. So I think that is a issue. I, I don't know that uh, – I hope that that doesn't occur. But, again, yes, I think that uh, the the wagons will be circled, including probably Germany, uh, to be on board uh, because if we don't, what's the point of uh, having the alliance in the first place? What kind of signal would that send to the uh, uh, the uh, Baltic states and some of the other places that, you know, are at least within NATO, let alone the other ones that aren't, that would rather not have uh, the Russians on their doorstep? Yeah, I think, you know, signals of weakness versus strength will be increasingly important as Russia and Putin decides, you know, what their next move potentially could be. Back here on the home front, Senator, I do want to ask you, uh, you are calling for the U.S. Capitol to be fully reopened. Um, uh, do you have any, I guess, optimism about that happening anytime soon? I see that the CDC might be considering new mask rules. I guess they're being urged to do so by the Biden administration. I mean, it's not really how science is supposed to work, but the whole thing is so politicized. We also saw reports that Speaker Pelosi is going to again have a very small crowd for the State of the Union address due to COVID, supposedly. You know, my proposal that I've put out there 
several times. I wrote about it. I've spoken about it. I think the Republicans should have the uh, State of the Union response go to Glenn Youngkin, have it delivered in Virginia down in Richmond in the House of Delegates and invite all the Republicans who might get locked out of the U.S. Capitol down to the Virginia Capitol, send a really clear message to the American people. Because, I mean, it looks like the, the politics for the Democrats continues to be sort of confounding and divisive for them. On one hand, they're all looking at the polling and the shifting public opinion sands, and they're saying, okay, uh, the, the science needs to change. We really need to change this science, quote-unquote, now, because it's not working for us anymore politically. But you still have a lot of people in their coalition deeply, deeply invested in this sort of crazy safetyism that's not scientifically rooted, but but they think it is. Uh, what's your read on where this is headed uh, at the Capitol and maybe, you know, writ large? Well, when you double down on something like uh, they did, and you've got to remember early on, neither Biden nor uh, Harris uh, said they would take the Trump vaccine. Of course, then they ran with it, talked about how they're going to be the logistical wizards and getting it out through the country. Uh, and then they dug in uh, to the extent when we could see that it wasn't the kind of vaccine that we all thought vaccines were, where you get a shot and you're basically immune for a good while. So now it's all falling apart. And I think metaphorically, Guy, I don't know if you saw the video of the kids in Las Vegas that were yes. erupting in joy when the teacher said no more masks. That's the feeling that probably most Democrats even would have if they're honest. Sadly, in the game of politics, and for the side that considers themselves political enterprisers and entrepreneurs, uh, regardless of how much anything costs, and that would be the Democrats, we're a little slower-footed as Republicans generally, but if they keep doubling down, it not only means the House in a wide margin, it means probably the Senate, and then I think it sets up 2024 for being, if we're smart like Governor Yunkin was when he was running, look at these basic issues that they've dished up to us. And I've brought this up since I've been here. Uh, we're generally political wallflowers, slow-footed as Republicans, never undo any of the uh, Rahm Emanuel, take advantage of a crisis, get all this crazy legislation passed, because it sticks. That drove them. Thank goodness Manchin and Cinema kind of uh, put the roadblock on the spending stuff. I think sooner or later when independents – I've never seen polling where they're almost hugging Republicans with the numbers. Generally, they're right in between. That's how bad the agenda has been, and that sets them up for a political challenge that uh, probably loses them the White House if we run with it correctly. Yeah, I think that that very well could be the case. And what you're seeing, I think, in the last week or two is a frantic course correction on the Democratic side. And the question is, is that going to work for them or is it too late? Is a lot of this baked in based on their previous actions? And, and my guess is a lot of it is baked in. We'll see. We'll know in nine or ten months. Senator Mike Braun, Republican, Indiana. Sir, always appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. We'll be right back. Guy Benson Show. We're back on the Guy Benson Show from New Orleans, Louisiana today. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcasts always free. And joining us now from Kiev, Ukraine, 
is Steve Harrigan, Fox News Middle East correspondent. He's on the ground. Steve, good to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. What can you tell us about the situation on the ground, the mood among Ukrainians? Because it's been a bit of a roller coaster these last few days in particular with this foreboding threat of war still hanging over, I would imagine, the capital city like a dark cloud. I think it's a little surprising if you think about it. If you've got 150,000 troops on your border and you have major Western powers telling you you're about to be invaded – To actually see the scene on the streets in this city of 3 million, people really just going about their business. No runs on grocery stores, gas lines, nobody fleeing. Um, Make of it what you will, whether they're in denial or whether they think it's not going to happen for some other reason or there's nothing they can do about it. But the atmosphere is oddly calm and there's a lack of preparation for war. Is there a lack of preparation for war within the circles of the government and the military, or is that just what you're observing among the general population? I think among the general population, among civilians, there have been some civilians who've been training with weapons, but the vast majority are still going about their everyday lives. And at first it struck me as odd and maybe almost criminal as far as negligence goes, but the more I've been here, this is the fourth week, This government and this president has really tried to stress calm, that they have everything under control, whether they do or not, and just keep living your life. Because I think the the concern is that with so many troops on the border, that there could be a collapse of this country from within, that the currency could collapse, that people could flee, that political leaders could try and flee to save themselves. So without firing a shot, I think Russia could gain a, a huge advantage. So they've avoided that for now by being calm. But with that, I think, goes a lack of mental and physical preparation for the civilians here. Is there any program from the leadership saying if it does come to war, if Putin does order those troops over the border, we have a contingency plan for civilians? I know part of the discussions have been or speculation in the West has been that if Russia does this, they would start potentially with bombardment, bombing, missiles, that sort of thing. Are there bomb shelters, or is it just nothing right now? Well, there there has been some moves by different mayors. There are bomb shelters, many of them dating back to the Cold War era. We actually talked to someone who had a bomb shelter you know, built in the 50s and 60s for potentially against the U.S., and now getting it ready to use if the Russians actually invade. The metro system, the subway here, is one of the deepest in the world. So at least in this city, the capital, Kiev, that would be a, a main bomb shelter for people. But the, the government has tried to both say we have everything under control, stay calm, and also disputing accounts that there's going to be an invasion. They actually fought over the word imminent for a while. The the Ukrainian officials did not like that the West kept saying an attack could be imminent. They've really tried to downplay it to protect their economy. In the meantime, there was the flurry of movement just yesterday on the diplomatic front. How is that received among Ukrainians that you're speaking to, whether officials or just average people? Do they believe that this is going to perhaps fend off the possibility of war, or is it just delaying potentially the inevitable? What's the attitude on that? 
I, I don't think most Ukrainians think a war is a, a wide scale war is inevitable. And many of the people that we've talked to, they've made a, a quite a bit of attention to the military aid coming in, even though it won't tip the balance militarily. We have things coming in like, uh, you know, portable javelin anti-tank missiles, things like that are getting a wide play on on television here. And I think there's a real gratitude, especially towards the U.S., for hundreds of millions of dollars in weapon shipment and a sense, too, that they're not alone. We've seen, like you said, a flurry of world leaders coming here. Many of them, you know, haven't been to Ukraine in, in five to 20 years, and they're all coming now. So it is the focus of world attention. I think people are aware of that and grateful for it. Finally, Steve, one of the things that has fascinated me about all this discussion and the speculation and the fear about this potential war is how quickly, at least in my mind, maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention, but I recall just a few weeks ago when President Biden gave his press conference and there was that big kerfuffle over him talking about a minor incursion and some critics accused him of almost giving permission to Russia to do that. It would be viewed differently in the West than a more you know, wider scale or major invasion. They walked that back. But to me, the fact that now there's lots of open discussion about the potential of Kiev being targeted and the capital city yeah. you know, taken down, the government uprooted – I mean, that would be pretty extreme. That There's nothing minor about that, and it seems like a pretty realistic possibility at least. Has that reality shifted, in your view, on the ground in that city? Like, oh, this might not just be a little show at the eastern border. They might be coming for us here. No. I think psychologically that would be a shock to people. And I don't think people have taken that in. And it's hard to. If you're on a normal street with traffic and shopping going on, a city of 3 million, people walking their dogs, families out, to think, you know, buildings could be exploding in a few minutes, that men could be dropping from helicopters, that your your leadership could be decapitated and a new leadership put in, martial law, all these things, psychologically, it's stunning to think it could happen quickly. Certainly it could. The West is saying it could. But psychologically, the people on the street here are not prepared for that. I don't think they're ready for it, and I don't think they think it can happen. I know I said the last question was my last question, but one more just about you and your safety and the safety of your crew and our Fox News colleagues there. We've heard the State Department and the president himself basically begging Americans to leave Ukraine. Of course, you guys are there to cover what may or may not happen. Do you have, this could be an ignorant question, do you have contingency plans to get out if that becomes necessary? What's the game plan there if a war breaks out and it looks like Kiev might be in the crosshairs? Yeah, you've got to hope that with 3 million civilians that the the targets will be accurate, that the targets will be military, and that you could hopefully ride it out and show what's going on. The other concern is, you know, if Russians do come in, you know, will they lock down media coverage immediately as well? So you could take the risk of being here and then not be able to broadcast. So there's a lot of variables. Some people have already left. And, of course, the way out now is largely by roads, by roads west towards Poland. 
So some people are leaving. You know, we're just going to wait and see and, and every day see what the risk is. Steve Harrigan, Fox News Middle East correspondent, joining us from Kiev, Ukraine, on the ground there. Steve, we really appreciate your local color, what you're seeing and hearing on the ground. Please stay safe and keep up the good work. Thanks, Guy. Steve Harrigan on The Guy Benson Show. Final hour of the program coming up. Andy McCarthy will be here on several domestic political controversies. That's straight ahead. o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. From New Orleans, it's the Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. It is the happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious. And as we mentioned, it's expanding. Some new states announced this week, in addition to all the existing places where it's already sold across the country. Arkansas, Indiana, Tennessee, and Wisconsin added to the lineup. You can find out where the Long Drink is sold near you at thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21-plus only, thelongdrink.com. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. We encourage you to check it out if you miss any of the show as it airs live, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Joining us to kick off our final hour is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, and author of multiple books, most recently Ball of Collusion, he has others as well. I follow him on Twitter at Andrew C. McCarthy. Andy, good to have you back here. Thanks for joining us. Guy, always a pleasure. I want to ask you first about the Durham investigation revelations. You and I have talked about this probe now on and off for, well, gosh, uh, well over a year. And much of it has been taking place out of the public eye. You'll occasionally get a report that the scope is expanding. We saw this week reports that it was accelerating in pace. And then every so often you'll get some sort of a hint or a clue based on some discrete action, some court filing, some you know indictment in one case. And it gives you just a little bit of a peek at what Durham might be looking at here. This week and over the weekend, there was what seemed to be a fairly dramatic development or revelation we had it. molly hemingway on the show yesterday talking about it what is your synopsis of what durham has revealed to us and what does it mean in your view guy i think the first thing that's worth observing is the reason that we only get these occasional peaks is because durham is playing it by the book so you only get a peek inside when he has a reason he has to disclose something in this instance, there's some litigation about whether one of the lawyers representing uh, Michael Sussman, who's the defendant, has a conflict of interest, which a prosecutor has an ethical obligation to raise with the court. And that's what spawned the litigation that led to this latest disclosure. The disclosure is, is interesting in that it shows that the, uh, the basis beneath the Sussman case 
is this idea that um, the Clinton campaign was trying to develop uh, a political narrative that Trump was basically a captive of Russia, that he was a clandestine agent for Putin's regime. And one of the ways they were trying to do that was to suggest that he had a secret back channel through an important Russian financial institution, Alpha Bank, that he was using as uh, to send uh, internet messages back and forth with the Kremlin. And the way they did this was, and by the way, Guy, I should preface this by saying, I think this is the nub of what's really interesting about this. And it's not necessarily criminal, but it's really sleazy and, and people ought to regard it as uh, disturbing. But what they were doing was they took advantage of the fact the Clinton people did, that they had somebody who had privileged access to government internet traffic data uh, because he had a government contract where – this is this guy, Rodney Joffe. He was supposed to be helping the government with cyber intrusions, with hacking. Security. And he used – right. And he used his privileged access to this information to mine data about Trump under circumstances where he was hoping to get a job in what they anticipated was going to be the Hillary Clinton administration and where he's clearly trying to help them create a political narrative. And he mines it, and according to, to Durham, cherry picks information that then gets spun in a very distorted way to suggest that there's this nefarious connection. And the new allegation that we heard this week in connection with this filing was that this project continued – uh, probably into Trump's presidency, and that one of the streams of Internet traffic that they were looking at was the executive office of the president. So basically yeah, you House. have outs – right. So you have outside people who are politically connected and politically motivated who are using privileged access to government information to get their hands on this stuff, and then the guy they picked to go into the uh, agencies to try to encourage them to investigate first candidate, then President Trump, is this is this guy, Michael Sussman, who not only is, you know, people say he's a Democratic-connected lawyer. I think the more important thing here is, yes, he's a Democratic-connected lawyer. He's a former federal prosecutor in the Justice Department where he works cybersecurity issues, which gives him entree to people who are current government officials in these same agencies. Uh -huh. So the, the nefarious little thing that's going on here, this incestuous relationship between you know, these government officials and kind of faceless bureaucrats, and around them is this, uh, this penumbra, if you will, of like former government officials who are chummy with the current government officials, and they're hidden away at you know, think tanks and law firms and lobbying firms and all, and all these other things, and you know, they kind of float in and out of – government and they take advantage of the access they have so andy everything that you just described does seem pretty disturbing to use your word i remember president trump complaining that he had been spied on and a lot of the media fact checkers said no there was no spying here then they all jumped all over bill barr the former attorney general when he said that yes in his estimation spying had occurred this does seem like yet another form of spying, whether it's legal technically or not, on Trump, on his campaign, even on his presidency, in furtherance of a political goal, it seems like a, a very big deal to me, even if we don't really know the full extent of what 
Durham's going to discover and reveal to the public at some point, assuming that he does put out uh, a huge report, and also assuming that there are not a lot of other indictments yet to come from him, and I know that it's your belief that that's probably not going to happen, you wrote a column at The Hill asking and answering the question from your vantage point, did Durham find something worse than Watergate? Because that's some of the rhetoric now surrounding this on the right and in Trump world saying we're fully vindicated. This is the biggest scandal in American political history. That seems like it might be a little over the top and hyperbolic to me, even though everything that you just described does seem scandalous. You say that the answer to that is not so far. This is not worse than Watergate so far. Maybe just expand on what you mean by that. Yeah, and, and let me preface this by saying, Guy, you know, what I'm saying here is, you know, pneumonia is bad, too, but it's not as bad as cancer, right? Um, you, you have to have some perspective about this. Watergate was an earth-shattering, shatter, history-altering event. It's the reason why every scandal in the ensuing 50 years has been called gate, right? Um, so I think people trivialize what Watergate was, but I think the definitive aspect of Watergate that's sorely lacking from what Durham is doing, at least according to Durham's version of events, is that in Watergate, the scandal was that the government was abusing the powers of government, including the law enforcement and intelligence apparatus of the executive branch, to to engage in corruption, whereas – According to Durham, what's happened here is the Clinton campaign and its operatives essentially duped the government into conducting an investigation and gave them false information. So this is not a situation, according to Durham, where the government officials are abusing their power. According to Durham, you know, the FBI is getting fooled left, right and center. The, the one charge that's been brought in the Sussman case is a false statements charge to the FBI, and it has nothing to do with fraudulent information. What, what they're basically saying is Sussman lied in a conversation with the general counsel of the FBI about who he was representing. The FBI, according to, to Durham, was given to understand that, that Sussman was just being a good citizen, and in fact, Sussman was representing this guy, Jaffe, and the Clinton campaign. Now, I must tell you, I, I find Durham's theory, and I like Durham. I, I know him a little bit. I have great respect for him. I think he's a great prosecutor. I find his theory very hard to swallow on this score because the general counsel of the FBI at the time, Jim Baker, was a friend of Sussman's. They knew each other for years. They knew each other from government. And everybody in Washington knows that Sussman – was the lawyer for the Democratic Party, including especially the FBI, because Sussman was the DNC's lawyer in connection with the Russian hack on the DNC servers. Yeah, so the notion this was all just like a bunch of, oh, we've been duped, I guess the counterpoint would be, were they willfully duped? Did they want to be duped because they believed these things and wanted them to be true? Right. They were pushing on an open door, I think. And I think Durham's going to have a very hard time getting a jury to swallow that the FBI is kind of a sap here. Well, I mean, that would also point to an even larger scandal, if slightly less criminal, potentially, a bigger political scandal. So let's transition just briefly, Andy, because you've written another piece at National Review about how all of this is feeling a little bit familiar 
vis-a-vis the Mueller investigation, how that was also locked down with very few leaks, except when they had to for various reasons. And you're wondering, could this be Mueller all over again just from the other perspective? Um, What do you make of that? What's your argument there? And isn't a huge difference the anticipation and the hype around Mueller's investigation from the media versus the near blackout of coverage on what Durham is doing? Because, I mean, I'm so old, Andy, I remember when they would go wall-to-wall with breathless coverage based on the tiniest update on a Russia-related story tied to Trump, and they've done almost no coverage at all on this stuff because it's not really the anti-Trump narrative that they were all so excited about and invested in. Yeah, I I would agree with that guy. As for the second part of your question, uh, yes, the media difference in treatment is not surprising to any of us who are followers of the media, but it's still astonishing to watch how, how differently they cover these things. And, you know, look, they're very self-motivated in connection with not covering Durham because what Durham is looking at is the basis for what they hysterically call the scandal for three years. Right. So not they surprisingly, were complicit. They don't want the public to see what thin gruel they, they spun everybody up over. But when I say that the the Durham investigation is like the Mueller investigation, I'm talking about from the perspective of a prosecutor. If you remember, I always thought the worst thing about the Durham investigation was that he tried to perpetuate, and I think this is mainly his staffers, but they tried to perpetuate the Trump-Russia narrative in these long charging documents that they would file where you would like Roger Stone if you read flip through the 15 or 17 pages of that it, it you know it goes like looks like collusion feels like collusion sounds like collusion it's almost collusion and then you flip to the last page and it's a you know it's a false statement case that doesn't have anything to do with collusion and all of most of Durham's uh, I mean Mueller's charges were like that and now look what we have with Durham there's a lot of talk about spying and Watergate and all this stuff so far, he's charged three people with making false statements. Mm. The false statement in the Sussman case doesn't have anything to do with spying or even – there's not even a claim that the information that was brought to the, to the Bureau and the CIA was right. So that's sort of like what you're describing is almost an echo of how Mueller went about things. I, at the very least, hope that Durham will put out a detailed report that will reveal what's happened here and sort of pull back – the cover so we can see all the sordid business that was going on. And apparently there is quite a bit of it, even if it's not criminal or chargeable. I think as a political matter, the American people, the voters and the media deserve to see it. And there should be some political accountability for some of the people involved directly or indirectly by hyping stuff that maybe didn't deserve to be hyped. And that could be part of the reason, as you mentioned, why the media doesn't want to cover this, because it won't really turn out very well or reflect well on them and their role in the fourth estate. Very quickly, Andy, last question. This business about President Trump allegedly bringing highly classified documents out of the White House with him down to Florida to Mar-a-Lago, the flushing of papers down the toilet, that allegation What are your thoughts on that? Because it seems, frankly, plausible that he did all of those things. I also am 
skeptical and kind of weary of sources whispering to certain reporters who then confirm with other reporters who may have talked to the same anonymous sources. It's just sort of, I don't know what to believe. Yeah, well, what I would say is this guy, the reason we know about this is because the January 6th committee started to look for these records because they noticed that they didn't have, um, they know Trump was making phone calls on January 6th, but they're not accounted for in the logs. And I think one thing led to another and there's missing stuff. This is one of those times where I don't think we're going to ultimately have to rely on the media because we're going to get this committee, which will tell us, you know, what they suspect Trump was up to and they'll give us some evidence about that. And the Justice Department is looking into it now as well. And the only thing I would say about it is even though the Presidential Records Act does not have any enforcement measures, it kind of relies on the good faith of the former president. Uh, a president cannot – a former president can't declassify information. So if he has classified documents and he didn't declassify them while he was president, that's going to be a problem. And if they can develop evidence that he was obstructing the committee, that would potentially be a problem. But we're a long way from there, so we should just sort of let, – let's see what the committee has to say, and I think we'll eventually hear from the Justice Department if this is serious. Okay, roger that. Andrew McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor. You can follow him on Twitter at Andrew C. McCarthy. He writes on all this stuff very carefully, thinks it through, which is why we love having him here. And he always appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much, Guy. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues after this break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on the Guy Benson Show, some sad news yesterday. Legendary writer and political satirist P.J. O'Rourke died. And that news emerged to the shock of his many fans and admirers across the Internet. Cause of death was complications from lung cancer. He was 74 years old. And I have read some of P.J. O'Rourke's stuff through the years. I never met him. I understand that he is beloved not just for his sense of humor, but because by all accounts... He was an incredibly nice person, just kind. And he was so talented. He was such a gifted writer that even major left-leaning publications would publish him because, I mean, the talent was just too strong. And so there he was sort of on an island sometimes tugging away in a rightward direction and using his wit to make points. A few memorable quotes from P.J. O'Rourke. Here's one. Giving money and power to government is like giving whiskey and car keys to teenage boys. He once said, the Democrats are the party that says government will make you smarter, taller, richer, and remove the crabgrass on your lawn. The Republicans are the party that says government doesn't work, and then they get elected and prove it. And on our ongoing health care policy debates in this country, famously, quote, if you think health care is expensive now, just wait till it's free. P.J. O'Rourke, a towering figure as a writer dead at 74. Rest in peace. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, it is the happy hour, and earlier in today's program, we welcomed Byron York, talking about some of the polling that continues to look very dismal. For President Biden and the Democrats, and people are extrapolating implications ahead to the 2022 elections. Byron York weighed in on that and more. Here's part of our conversation. 
there seem to be a kind of new floors being discovered when it comes to support yeah. for President Biden. And I just want to get, first of all, your overall thoughts on this trend. Well, it's it's no surprise. <laughs> Excuse me. It's no surprise uh, because he's been going down and he's probably not going to go up very quickly. As a matter of fact, last week, I believe he fell below 50 percent. Excuse me, he fell below 40 percent for the first time in the real clear politics average of polls. Uh, and remember, the reason we're, one of the big reasons we're talking about this is because um, a president's job approval rating is the best, the best predictor of how his party will perform in midterm elections. If you look at Gallup, uh, Gallup did a, a study a while back that uh, going back all the way to the 1940s, if you look at Gallup, for presidents whose job approval rating is above 50 percent, the, um, the average loss of seats is 14 seats. Presidents whose job approval rating is below 50 percent, average loss of seats is 37 seats. And I'll give you one last thing. Another um, uh, analyst named Nathan Gonzalez went through uh, midterms going all the way back to Harry Truman and said, no president, not one, has substantially increased, raised his job approval rating between February of his midterm year and the actual election. Interesting. And, I mean, we see the news yesterday, for instance, on inflation worse than expected. The border crisis, as you and I have talked about, Byron, multiple times, continues to spiral out of control and and in some ways is getting worse. Uh, Some of the things that Biden could maybe hope for for a turnaround aren't happening. Our full interview with Byron York of the Washington Examiner and our Fox News colleague, available as part of our free on-demand podcast every single day. GuyBensonShow.com. It's all right there. Fox News Podcasts. Dot com, another option for the podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. I don't even know what to expect from this topic. Christine has just written on the rundown, why, why the clown? I shudder to even imagine what she has in store, but we'll all learn together when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch, Wednesday edition on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here, GuyBensonShow.com. I'm in Louisiana, New Orleans specifically, for the next couple of programs. And as I teased before the break on today's home stretch, which is available, of course, on the free podcast, as is the whole show every day, on demand, no charge, GuyBensonShow.com. So last week, as we mentioned briefly, our team member here, Wyatt, lost a grandparent, and that's obviously a very difficult thing, and he was off for the week, and we just wished him and his whole family well and expressed our condolences. Producer Christine was kind enough to represent our team at the wake, and I guess because she was at this wake and was meeting members of Wyatt's family and extended family, she gleaned some intelligence into, I guess, nicknames and other family-related stories that might involve Quiet Wyatt. So I'm just trying to figure out, Christine, 
am I right about all of that so far? And are you about to tell embarrassing stories about Wyatt that you only know because of a death in his family? Is that I what am. we're doing here? That's exactly what we're okay. doing here. Classy, right? That's what we're doing here. <laughs> okay. I was sort of hoping that maybe that wouldn't be the case. And you'd be like, oh, no, you've got it all wrong. Let me explain. No, no, I've, I've somehow uh, I've nailed it here. And perhaps against my better judgment, we're going to proceed as planned. I guess the floor is yours. I, I have nothing else to add here. I don't know what's coming. Well, it's not often that, uh, one, you go to a wake or a funeral and get some embarrassing information about your coworker that you can use on a national radio broadcast. So uh, score yeah, that's one. That's usually at, for example, a rehearsal dinner at a wedding where the best man gets up and tells some stories, right? And the groom kind of blushes and everyone laughs. And that's how this type of stuff gets divulged. We're doing this in a different context, so a little unorthodox, which is not unusual, I guess, because it's cookie involved, but go ahead. And uh, number two, it's not often that one goes to a wake to pay their respects of someone who passed and leaves that wake with a balloon animal. But uh, here we are, and uh, what? both were accomplished. So, Wait, they were doing balloon animals at a wake? So let me start from the beginning. Um First off, to keep this classy and respectful, again, our deepest condolences to Wyatt and his family for the passing of YY's grandmother. That being said. Oh, boy. Okay, YY is Wyatt. And and I just want to say that was nice of you to say, but it felt a little perfunctory, some box checking. I don't know that word. Okay, that being said, with our respects to the dead – now out of the way, let's move on to this thing. Perfunctory. I like it. Um, okay. So I, I went to the wake, and Wyatt's family is just lovely. Um, they are all huge fans of the show, huge fans of yours and of mine, of course. And <laughs> it was nice to, you know, meet the people that created our amazing Quiet Wyatt, because as we always have said, or, okay, maybe have I've always said, he's the favorite of the show. I just know it. You have favorites, and he is the favorite. And no, I'm, you think I play favorites? Well, we just know. You like him better than me. I just know it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. So, anyway. So, that's the hypothesis going into this. Did you Did you happen to ask them, by any chance, his parents and others, did he emerge onto the scene as an infant smoking a pipe like an old man pipe with a cardigan sweater and a tweed jacket reading a print edition of the Wall Street Journal? Because that's how I imagine him on day one. I didn't ask that, but I mean, I just am going to assume that is the case, except definitely no pipe. Like, I feel like he would never, never do that. That's that's too bad. But um so anyway, he's introducing to me to some of the family, and we're chatting. And then in walks this lady, a, a very, very nice lady. And I believe she is a family member, but they basically, you know, she's like, I'm sorry, she's a friend of family, but she's basically family to them. And Wyatt looks at me and says, she's a clown. And I said, what? And he said, no, she, that's her job. She's a clown. And she then. And you were like, hang on, there's not enough room for two of us in this room. <laughs> You had to go confront her. I told you. <laughs> so 
She hands me her business card because I'm now intrigued that she's she a has clown. business cards. Yeah, she's a clown. Like that's what she does. You know, she does parties. And does the business card have any sort of like trick, <laughs> or is it just straightforward? I actually have the business card. Oh, I should have brought it into the studio. I have it in my purse. Uh, and then she proceeded to pull out balloons. And then just, you know, blow one of those long balloons up and then very quickly turn it into a ladybug with like a, <laughs> a brace. Ladybug. Yeah, with a bracelet and then put it on my wrist. So now I'm walking around <laughs> with a balloon animal. <laughs> did you ask for any of that? No. I No, I did not. No, I did not. <laughs> and actually, at some point, I kindly put it into my purse because I didn't feel it was... <laughs> Respectful. It felt a little odd that I was walking around mm. with this giant yeah, lady. Incongruous, bug. perhaps, to have a uh, a balloon animal attached to your body at a wake of a stranger. Correct. So I put it in my bag, and then she came over to me and she goes, "Where is it?" I'm like, "Oh no, no, no! It's it's in the bag. I'm sorry." But her and I began to talk, and then she tells me that not only is she a clown, but our very own Wyatt was a clown himself. Oh, stop. Yes, yes. And his name was YY the Clown. And he makes makes balloon animals too. And he's very good at it. And he used to show up. (laughs) I can't hold on. He used to show up at like soccer fields and he had a sign that said YY the Clown. And I guess he dressed up and he would like make balloon animals for kids. (laughs) Like uninvited? Yeah, I guess so. It's like like know. a lemonade stand, but it was like a like a traveling solo clown show. I'm not really sure. You have to kind of. I mean, at this point now, like it's hard for me to realize that I'm still at a wake. It's hard for me to process what she <laughs> she is saying because all I'm thinking is remember all of this, Christine. You have to remember this for air. You have to remember this for the radio show. <laughs> and now, why it's getting a little embarrassed. Oh, he's standing there. Yeah, he's, he's standing right there. And I'm looking Good. at him, and he's not saying much. But then, you know, some of his family <laughs> members come over and confirm. I think his father confirmed that, yes, he was a clown. And I, I believe he showed me a picture of YY the clown, like dressed up as a clown. Um, I, it was <laughs> – I normally am not very surprised by things, especially from Wyatt. You know, he, I was – He's a surprising guy, and he's had a lot of – Side hustles through the years, right, from the apple orchard to, I guess, stuff that he was doing. Baking. In high school, yeah, he would bake and sell stuff in high school, right? He would sell, am I remembering correctly, he would bake stuff for, like, school dances, sell them, but not attend the dance. And so Wyatt, Wyatt's an intriguing, unique sort of fellow, but the clown stuff, I mean, I, I truly, I am shook. I was not expecting this at all. It has been. I mean, we have we have one court jester here, (laughs) and to my knowledge, it was not him. So, Wyatt, I have to now bring you in, and and I will also add our condolences to your to your family. I mean, it might feel kind of empty given that we have now spun off into this nonsense based on intelligence gathered by producer Christine, who is, of course, a trained intelligence officer, as we've established earlier at. This wake, is she exaggerating or is this all true? Oh, so guy, thank you guys for everything. You guys are the best um, with everything that happened with my grandmother. And 
Um, I have to correct the record on some things, but some of it is true. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm very I'm a very entrepreneurial person. Um, but it started when I used to go to my brother's soccer games, and this woman that Christine met at the wake was uh, the grandmother of one of my brother's uh, teammates. And so I would sit on the, on the sidelines, bored, not really into any of the sports stuff. And she was there. And one day she started making balloon animals. So I watched. And then I, she was like, you do it. And she showed me how to do it. And then I just continued to do it, to do it, as to do something fun at these soccer games. What and animals then, can you make, Wyatt? Oh, I could make, like, what's in I your could repertoire? make a lot. <laughs> you could do a dog, a flower, a sore. I mean, I used to do all these different things. Could you and, do... Could you do this is crucial for Christine. Could you do a pony? <laughs> I don't know if I could do that, but I used to do all different kinds and I mean it was as you can tell a very highly unusual thing to be doing on the sideline of a yes. soccer game. Yes. And so other people would would want in and and want to get balloon animals for their kids. And so then I came up with the the bread idea to pitch this thing to to make balloon animals at all these soccer tournaments that I was going to uh, in my town and so they hired me and at a very young age like I, I you know like what 11 to 13 I don't know I would come to these soccer tournaments and make like five six hundred dollars um, from the soccer field place and then also on top of that make tip money from people tipping me because it was like kind of a circus act in itself to have a kid twisting balloons and doing this so it just became were you dressed thing. up this is a this is a very important question were you dressed up as a clown yes yes i was there are there are photographs oh, that are, are deep in the vault so like that will, big shoes be... and and squeaky nose and makeup and all that yeah yep huh so it okay. was yeah yep and <laughs> But it just it became this whole thing, and it was like you said, one of my side hustles. I always have a entrepreneurial, you know, uh, aspiration of different things, whether it's through my baking business or different things like that. And this just happened. And I mean, like I said, I I was making hand over fist, making good money doing this, but also kind of enjoying it because it was something for me to do while my siblings played sports at these big. So, so what's the fact check then? Like you said that you had to fact check some of this. Well, Seems like she, Christine well, kind of nailed this. Said that I just. Well, she said I just showed up. No, I was hired. So there's a difference there. I, my services were wanted. They weren't not, you know, <laughs> I, I, I was hired. So I, I used to do it like, you know, at all these soccer tournaments. And it was this, this whole thing. Um, and is yeah. YY just your, based on your name? Yeah. And it's only two Ys. It's YY. But I mean. Oh, but, so there's so, no Ws involved. No, no. It's just YY. But. Like I said, this was something I did a long time ago, um, but this, this woman is very close to our family, and she's older as well, but she was close to my grandmother, and so she wanted to be there. And she also just makes things fun, you know, in such a sad time like it was for us. She knew my grandmother, and so she wanted to bring a little fun and lightness to it and really, really lightened up the place with, with this, with Christine. So, you know, we tried to keep it a little, a little, little fun. Wow. Well... <laughs> I'm sort of amazed by this story, and the only thing I can say beyond that it's sort of sweet and how we, again, just want to extend our best to your family is that maybe you could bring YY the Clown out of retirement 
for the farewell party on Eyesore Lane for producer Christine when the house is finally sold and they're moving out. Maybe you can come entertain all the kids with some balloons and producer Christine can hire you. That's just, I'm putting that out there as a possibility. I think Megan and her little friends would love it. Christine? Uh, yeah, this has been discussed. Not about the farewell party. And just so you know, <laughs> I get so nervous. You said farewell party for Christine. I thought I, you were going to tell <laughs> no, me No, not something. that kind. No, that, that's coming soon enough, of oh, course. Oh, okay. But, but uh, no, no. I, I, meant, I meant when you're moving out. Yeah, well, I did tell, and I'm sorry, I don't know her name. So I did tell the, the actual clown at the, the wake that I would hire her for a birthday party for Megan, but only... Only if YY shows up, too. Uh-huh. So that was your contingency. You know his price, five $600, apparently. So you might want to start saving up, right? You have your Christmas savings account. Maybe you need a YY the Clown <laughs> savings account. Very quickly, Dan, our engineer, please tell me you have never been a clown of any sort. I have not. I have not been a clown, um, so you're clear okay. on that. Good. Yeah, no, it's, I, I could not be surrounded by clowns. So it's at least two on two right now. We've got to go. I'm not, I'm not I don't even know. I, mm. Well, many people are saying, Christine. Many people are saying. we got to go, though. We're up on the clock. The show's over. I have to process this information. I'm learning this as you all are. Maybe I'll go to the gym and just sort of sweat it out. And add one more strange level to the onion that's been now peeled back here on the team, the Guy Benson Show. Why, why the clown unmasked by Cookie at a wake? <laughs> Can't make it up. It's only on the Guy Benson Show. Back here tomorrow. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.